All right, let's continue tonight in the Revelation in chapter 19. We sing about Jesus is over. <laughs> That's what you get for quoting lyrics when you don't have them right in front of you. Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed, and I will rise when he calls my name. So let's turn our attention particularly to those events this evening as we press on into Revelation chapter 19 after the destruction of Babylon the Great in her final and ultimate manifestation at the hands of the beast and and his kingdom, the Lord playing evil like a pawn as the means for his own judgment and justice to come for the last time before the end of the age we see rejoicing break out in heaven. Just as they were commanded to do while the people of the earth mourned, the saints rejoice. There is three hallelujah choruses in Revelation chapter 19, each one becoming more intense as they progress from one to the other. The word here in the Greek is hallelujah. It's not a translation, it's a mouthful because it's a direct transliteration out of the Hebrew and into the Greek from the Hebrew words halal which means shine and yah which is the short for Yahweh hallelujah doesn't mean thank goodness I found my keys hallelujah means Yahweh shines and right here he is shining as bright as mankind has ever seen him shine up to this point the fullness of of the glory of God is about to be on display. And they hallelujah, and they hallelujah, and they hallelujah, giving glory and honor to the Lord who is defeating His enemies and saving His people. And in chapter 19, verse 6 through 10, we come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Guys, i got to tell you, and we sing this song, I Will Rise, and we speak of the resurrection, and Scripture speaks of the resurrection with much anticipation, but I would tell you that Scripture speaks of the resurrection with much anticipation because of the context to Scripture is written to. That is to say, if you want to talk about the resurrection general, while spectacular, the resurrection is not uncommon. As a matter of fact, the resurrection of the dead will be as common to all mankind as birth was. They're all getting raised. As a matter of fact, the second resurrection is much larger than the first. The reason that Scripture speaks with such anticipation about the resurrection of the dead is because of the audience that Scripture is being written to, namely those who will participate in the first resurrection in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because it doesn't do you any good to be risen from the grave if you're going to be risen unto condemnation. But buddy, it's spectacular if you're risen unto salvation and the fulfillment of the prayer of Christ in John chapter 17 where He said, I desire that those that You have given Me may be with us where we are. The fulfillment of the covenant, the promise of the Gospel. In chapter 19, in verse 6, it says, Then, after these three hallelujah choruses, then, I mean, you got to love the scene here. You gotta love the scene because then this is this is a wedding, and the three hallelujah courses are, are like the the celebratory songs, the music that it is the beginning, 
quite frankly, the resurrection is is pretty much popping out of the grave is pretty much the the event when when the doors are opened at the back of the church and there's the bride. And then comes then comes the consummation of the covenant. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who, invi- who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, here we see the much anticipated marriage supper of the Lamb after seven years, after seven years of lawlessness unhindered, after three and a half years of the saints being given over to destruction at the hand of the beast for a testimony that is promised one day to provoke to jealousy. Man, the day has finally arrived. And you see the bridegroom and his bride. So, of course, we have to ask ourselves as to who the identity of the bride is. And many people are going to say the church. And certainly we could quote places like Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27, and then again in 32, we, it ought to be familiar to all of us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And you go, man, this is what... Christian husbands are commanded to do with their wives. And here we look in chapter 6 and verse 7 and we see this rejoicing in heaven heaven over the fact that Christ has done that very thing with His bride. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And shouldn't be any surprise that we see that parallel there because in verse 32 Paul tells us that this mystery of the covenant of marriage is profound for I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church and so here's what you ought to be doing men with your wives you ought to be washing them with the water of the word that you may present them to yourself in splendor and without spot or wrinkle or any such thing and here we see Christ and his bride and He's done exactly that he has granted it to her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure and here she is being presented to her husband. We could quote out of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, where Paul writes and says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. We look at the bride and we go, man, is this the church? If we're going to be fair. If you rewound to 2,000 years ago, everybody would be looking at the bride and Asking the question, is this Israel? 
we could quote out of places like Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 6. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she was cast off, says your God. Or Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. When I passed by you and saw you, behold, you were of the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So we can make very, and those are just, I picked two for each proof text. You could have picked just pages full. They speak about the church as being the bride of Christ. They speak about Israel as being the bride of Christ. And we ask, which one is it? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And avoid you know, the dispensationalism pitfalls. The reality is, is the bride of Christ is the redeemed in Christ throughout the ages. All those who have been born of the Spirit. So you're going to see the Apostle Paul there. And you're going to see... Matthew there, and you're going to see Luke there, and you're going to see um, the Gentile woman who said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. And you're going to see Abraham there, and you're going to see Isaac there, and you're going to see Jacob there, and you're going to see David there, and you're going to see Solomon and Jonathan, and yes, even the first King Saul that committed the sin unto death, he will be there. The Lord is faithful to his people. Shoot, that's why God killed him. is so that he would make it to there, as God said he would do. Man, this is the redeemed of the gospel. These are the captives from the conflict. Those who have been set apart to Christ. And man, they are dressed in white, it says. White linen, bright and pure, Throughout prophecy, particularly in the book of Revelation, a definitive sign of holiness. And I love, I love the, the turn of the phrase here and the way that this is presented. And, and if you'll notice, this is, this is the cry of the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. This is a cry that is coming from heaven. This is speaking of the bride in the third person. And what you see here is a literary device that you will see used from time to time by the Holy Spirit to express one of the deep concepts of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of His people. He also does this in Psalm 23. He says, You make me lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside the still waters. Before there can be a leading, the sheep must be first made to lie down. This is the picture of the Good Shepherd with his people. Here we see something very similar. Notice in verse 7 and verse 8 there is something that we can say about the holiness of the bride. 
that is very akin to what we see in Psalm 23, and that is this. The marriage of the Lamb has come in verse 7, and the bride has made herself ready. She's made herself ready, man. She's been preparing. This is a moment of great anticipation. She's made herself ready. And then this statement. It was granted her. It was gifted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is nothing less than the righteous deeds of the saints. So here you have a bride who has made herself ready, and the manner in which she has made herself ready is because righteous deeds have been granted to her passively from outside of her. What you see, these two ideas, well, well, let's just look at it this way. Okay, first, the saints strive in righteous works. The bride has been laboring to make herself ready. The saints strive in righteous works. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yeah, don't be, don't be some kind of fatalistic weirdo that's apart from Scripture. Don't make yourself a heretic. The saints strive in righteous works. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Paul says, man, I'm working, dude. I was given some skill, and I'm using that, and I'm laying the foundation. And someone else is building on it. Paul says, I'm not the only one working. This is Christian work ethic from front to back. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. And now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but is only through fire. And so here, man, at, at the judgment seat of Christ, which is occurring like and I, I don't even know that you can put a time stamp on this more than it is just a necessitated spiritual order if that's fair maybe you can but scripture certainly doesn't tell us if you do but somewhere in all of these events that occur in the twinkling of an eye is the events of first corinthians chapter three because that's how you get with bright and pure. That's how you get there. And so, here you have the picture of the saints laboring, making themselves ready to be the bride of Christ, making themselves acceptable and holy to stand before Him and anything that failed is burned up and consumed and the only thing that remains is the stuff that was true and built in Christ to to begin with. At the same time, we could also say that God ordains the righteous works of the saints. Ephesians chapter 2, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so once again, it's kind of like asking the question, well, is the bride the church or is it Israel? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It is the redeemed of the ages. And then you ask the question, does the bride make herself ready or was it granted to her to have these things? And the answer is yes. Yes, it was. It was granted to her. And she has made herself ready. These two ideas are not in contradiction. As a matter of fact, I 
chose Paul all three quotes here because I think that way we're, we're, this is not only coming from the same spirit, but this is even coming from the same, the, the same human mind that the spirit is using to, to tell these things. So on one hand, in 1 Corinthians, you have Paul going, look, man, the saints strive in righteous works. He writes to the Ephesians and says, God is ordaining, he is causing the righteous works that are in you. And you say, how do those two things go together? And he explains it when he writes to the Philippians and says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Guys, when you have a Colossians chapter one, God, who not only created all things by himself and for himself and unto himself, but is moment to moment actively holding you together in your being. That doesn't simply mean your physical existence, but the whole package. He's holding together your thoughts. He's holding together your emotions. He's holding together your desires. When you have a God that has called that into being and that is maintaining that existence, you can never get away from the from the reality that the way you are able to strive and want to strive is because he is gifted to you that you may strive. And so is it true that the bride has labored to prepare herself? Amen. Amen to the point that if she has not labored to prepare herself, it is evidence that he is not working in her to will and to do. Because buddy, if he's working in her to will and to do, she will will and do. And it is simultaneously true that the reason that we can have these things is because salvation is the gift of God in Jesus Christ. So here you have the bride and she is laboring and she is granted to be this thing. The laboring is proof of the granting. The granting is the thing that allows the laboring to exist. And it blows John up to the point that he just does something stupid. Something that he knows better than. He's been corrected of once before already. And it just blows him away so bad he's just going to spin off into some you know, um, disorderly worship here. And this angel's like, no, get up. Get up. I'm a fellow servant. You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for he is the one that is accomplishing all of this. He said, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We know who the bridegroom is. It's Christ. We know who the bride is. It's the redeemed of the ages. Those that uh, were first resurrected from the dead at His appearing and then in the twinkling of an eye later. Those that are left alive, though a pretty, at this point in time, pretty small, ragtag and hard-pressed crew, um, all caught up uh, to meet Christ in the air, the, the, the refining fire of the judgment seat of Christ that removes the wood, the hay, the straw, and the stubble so that we can be those bright and pure and are prepared for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you can't have a wedding without guests. There has to be witnesses to this spectacle. That's the point. This is hallelujah. This is Yahweh shine. It's an intentional spectacle. That's what we've got going here. There's got to be people to see it. There's got to be people to enjoy it. There's got to be people to, to, to let that glory fall on their faces, so to speak. And so here's the statement, blessed are those who are invited. And so we have to ask, who are the guests? Who are they? And we can say uh, with certitude 
um, that they are not those that are believers at the return because they are definitively part of the bride. Um, Paul tells the Thessalonians, he says, look, man, don't worry about those who have fallen asleep. They're going to go first at the resurrection of the dead. But then in the twinkling of an eye, once again, I don't think you can place a time stamp on that. You know, there's always some commentary that wants to tell you that, you know, modern photo technology has determined that the, you know, the time that it takes for your eye to twinkle is a fraction of so many milliseconds or whatever. That's not the point there, I don't think. Um, the idea is that it is instantaneous, but God has order, right? So the dead are going to rise first. And, and, you know, when you're going about the business of doing, you know, like bringing the dead back to life, you know, the whole time restraint is really not a concern there. This is not, you know, manufacturing of vehicles or whatever. If you're going to speak the dead of the ages from the grave, then you pretty much do it just as fast as you want. And so we know that the bride's not the, the dead in Christ. I mean, the, the guests aren't the dead in Christ. They're the bride. We know they're not the those still left alive in Christ because they're the bride being caught up just the same as those who have gone on before. And we know they are not his enemies because his enemies are being destroyed. He just used the beast to whack uh, the, the great prostitute uh, of Babylon. And now he is about to turn his attention immediately to the destruction of the beast itself and all of those that follow him. And so you got to ask, who is the bride? And the answer is this. The bride is the remnant of unbelieving Israel that are going to repent because of this event at his return. That's all you've got left. Man, the dead in Christ have risen. Those alive in Christ have been caught up. His enemies are about to be absolutely destroyed. We know it's not them who are the guests at the wedding because it says, blessed are those who are invited. And buddy, there ain't no blessing coming for the beast. This is the remnant of the bloodline of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that have been protected. Remember back in chapter 12 when the dragon was cast to earth in great fury because he knew his time was short and he thought, why deal with the church that has the Holy Spirit in them when I can attack Israel, the, the people into which their promise is grafted who currently doesn't have the Holy Spirit in them? By comparison, they're an easy mark. Let's go for the one that doesn't have the living God residing in them. But if we can cut them off before they're born again, man, the whole, the whole vine will die. Because they'll be separated from Israel, those which they were grafted into that receives the nourishment from the root that is Christ. So let's just chop the thing down right at its base instead of trying to clip off 10,000 limbs. He goes after Israel, but the Lord won't let him. He protects her. He brings her to the side and instead allows Satan to run roughshod over those that hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why? Because being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, they can take it when Israel can't. Israel will succumb. They will fall and the promise will fail. And it's just like what we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks on Sunday morning when something is about to happen that God says, I will not let happen, then He does some drastic things to keep that from happening. He protects Israel. He swallows up the river that the dragon has poured out of his mouth to consume her and He hides her away for a time, times, and half a time. 
until the coming of this moment. This moment. When these events will be the very thing that provoke her to jealousy and bring about her salvation. Previously, unbelieving Israel is called home to Jerusalem. They're called home after the destruction of Babylon the Great. Look in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, quickly here, I know we're out of time. Uh, for 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 expediency's sake, we'll just um, just at the beginning here, real quick, in eleven one, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, if you Fast forward, and you guys can read that in your own time. In verse 10, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria. And guys, here, look, these folks that we've been reading about in Amos that are that are you know when the house of Jeroboam is just going to get run roughshod over and be eaten by the dogs and the birds and and the the mortality rate is going to be 90% at the hands of the Assyrians that 10% that survives and is scattered across to the nations it is the descendants of those people that much of this is speaking about Man, this is the Lord bringing back. You know, like we said, man, you commit the sin unto death. What the Lord will do is cut you off in order that at the resurrection that you may be the one that escapes as though one through the flame. And you see that happening with national Israel. Man, national Israel is about to go fully apostate. They were almost already there. And the Lord says, I'm done. We're not going to let the promise fail. This is the day. If you will go with what... Hebrews said about Abraham and Isaac that he did receive him back from the dead, if you know what I mean. This is the day he brings them back. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. And he's just he's just buckshotting the map right there. From everywhere they've been scattered. And he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off and Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east and they shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites 
Ammonites shall obey them and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of this people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So miraculous is this returning, this inviting to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So miraculous is the returning of the people of Israel on this day that elsewhere in Scripture it says they will no longer say the God who led us out of Egypt, but instead they will say the God that led us to himself in Jerusalem. Zechariah 12. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Or as Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. They return out of the provoking and to be provoked to jealousy. This is the point. This is the thing that they are supposed to look at and say that is supposed to be our promise. That is supposed to be our groom. We are supposed to be the bride. And in that moment of jealousy, of weeping and mourning over what has come for the bride of Christ, their heart is broken and the Lord opens for them a fountain of grace and pleas for mercy and he puts in them a new heart. In Romans chapter 10, verse 19, Paul says, I asked, did Israel not understand? For first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation and with a foolish nation I will make you angry. They will be provoked to jealousy when they see the Messiah come in power to marry someone other than themselves. And it will result, according to Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, in their salvation. This is the testimony of Jesus. It is the spirit of prophecy. All those things that Isaiah was writing about, all of those things that we see written about in Amos that were going to provide the scattering that was required for what Isaiah talks about, it's all prophecy. It's all the testimony of Christ. Don't worship the messenger. Worship the one from whom the message comes. I'm over time. I'm not finished, but I'm done. We will see the Lord turn His eye and say, man, you don't get as, as much content there about the marriage supper of the Lamb itself as you would like to get. That's okay. You'll be there. Front row seats. You'll get to know all the stuff. Uh, next having taken his bride he will turn himself to the vanquishing of his enemy